the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2020 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. And if this is the first time you heard the show, welcome aboard. The show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion. It is Black History Month, so we are going to be talking about historic black Brooklyn. Now, with me right now is my son, Michael, behind the controls. Hello, everyone. Good to hear from you. And our semi-co-star, Nicole Donnelly. Always a pleasure to be here. One of the attorneys in our office. So, Nicole, we're talking about it. Now, what what came to mind in our discussion? So, it's been coming up a lot amongst our clients. So, I want you to tell our listeners out there, how is it that they can handle the information regarding their cemetery plot in their will? Is there space for it? What do they do? There's a lot of questions. Okay. Well, you know, there, there are different ways to consider it. One, if you want to leave, let's say you have a cemetery plot and, you know, you have two two grave sites as for husband and wife, fine. You may want to put in your will because a lot of times um, people when they pass away, you know, their family, their relatives, the first thing they look at is the will. So in there you could have the instructions that you have a plot, you know, and again, I would specifically name the plot, where it is, what cemetery, what's the plot range, whatever the, it is. So your family knows where to go or they can show it to the funeral director and he'll know where to go if he doesn't already have a copy of the deed you know, in his file. The other thing is if you're going to leave, let's say you have a, a plot and you have you know, three lots in it and the husband and wife, you can have an extra plot, grave site. If you want to leave it to somebody, you should leave it to... Um, the person specifically, if you want to do that, you have to. You can't just put it in the residuary of your estate. You have to say that I leave section, block, lot, range, whatever it is. You have to specifically identify the plot if you're going to give it through your will. You can't just generally say it. So you say I give um, section, whatever, range, whatever, plot, you know, and, and you should leave that. If you want to leave your will, to leave it to somebody that we do. And, you know, again, maybe you have three plots and you want to leave, you want to keep two. 
like our friends today. The good old names. Yes. They sleep in a king size bed and they want a king size plot for each other. Okay, so we 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 told you we're going to give you a shout on that one. So you know, (laughs) good luck. God bless you. Um, but again, it's you know ordinarily a cemetery plot. A lot of people think I have a deed to a cemetery plot. It's mine. It's really not yours. It's not like you have a deed to that little section of land. What you have is a right to be buried within that cemetery, and you're still subject to the cemetery rules. So, you know, if the cemetery has certain rules, what you can do, not do, you know, like, uh, for instance, a lot of Jewish cemeteries would put in there that if you have a tattoo, you can't be buried within the Jewish cemetery. If you're not Jewish, you can't be buried within some of the city, Jewish city cemeteries. Some Catholic cemeteries have that if you're not Catholic, you can't be buried there, although that's very, very rare. It's usually you can be buried there, but in some cases the plot has to be owned by a Catholic if you're in a Catholic cemetery. So there there are a lot of rules, and some people think, well, I have a deed to a cemetery. I can do whatever I want with it. It's a right to be buried, and it's kind of like a co-op to some extent. If you want to switch ownership, you got to follow the co-op rules. And ordinarily, if, there, if there's no clear uh, instructions, then it goes according to the family. So the next family member has a right to be buried there. And, of course, sometimes that can cause some conflicts because you might have, you know, 10 nephews and nieces and you don't put any clear rules on it, then who can be buried there or not? It might be, you know, in a lot of cases, some funeral directors might tell you, you know, first come, first served. First one to die gets a right to be buried there. But if you do want to leave your cemetery plot to somebody, you specifically identify it and give it to somebody and if you want just as a informational purposes it, there's no harm in putting in your will that we have a gravesite at whatever because you know sometimes when people die uh, you know maybe they die in a nursing home their house is gone or maybe their house is a mess and you can't find everything it doesn't hurt to have it is my request that I be interred with every cemetery and whatever gravesite or whatever. And, of course, it's always, and we should probably talk about this. We haven't done this in a while. We should probably talk about, you know, it, it's not a bad idea to prepay your funeral depending on the circumstances, especially between husband and wife if you're the survivor of the couple. You may want to prepay your funeral, and that way um, there's less of a burden on your children or heirs, especially if you don't have children. It's less of a burden on them because they know exactly what to do. They don't have to go, hey, what would Aunt Martha want to do? What would Uncle Joe want to do? They have a clear pattern, and it's it's an expense that's taken off them or somebody else. And one of the things, too, which we should talk about it someday, what you pay for a funeral is exempt from nursing homes' medical bills. So, like, if somebody's going into a nursing home and they wanted to buy a mausoleum for $50,000, they could do that and exempt it from nursing home bills. I know not too many people do that, but every once in a while somebody does it. So, you know, if 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 you want to talk about that stuff, you can give us a call at Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And it, you want to speak to me, ask to speak to me, you can speak to me. If you live in Staten Island or if you speak Spanish, you may want to speak to Nicole. Now, Nicole Donnelly, how do you speak Spanish? How come? How come? Well, for all of you who haven't been listening, I learned Spanish before. New listeners every day. Welcome aboard. (laughs) I learned Spanish before I learned English because that was my mother's way of really sticking it to my dad. 
<laughs> Where was your mother from? My mom was born in Columbia. And my dad is just a regular Irish fellow from New York, Brooklyn, born and raised, probably never left. What do you mean probably never left? I mean, he says he went to Florida, but I've never seen it. So, I mean, I'm going to go with he never left. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm a little speechless right now, but that's okay. <laughs> Always my goal. Always. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. After the break, we're going to be talking about black history, Brooklyn, and there's some interesting stories about Brooklyn. And even, you know, like I remember when I was a little boy growing up, my father would talk, talk to me about the uh, Sheepshead Bay racetrack. There was a racetrack out in Sheepshead Bay, and a lot of the stable boys and grooms and so forth lived in Brooklyn. And a little bit of history, plus semi-pro baseball. Uh, you know, my father's team used to play against some of the what they used to call Negro League teams or Negro teams um, back then. And, and there's some pictures of that. About Believe it or not, uh, there's a football team, a uh, baseball team called, called the Kingsboroughs that was a African-American baseball team back then. So my father used to play for the Kingsboroughs, so we'll see. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by Nicole Donnelly. Always a pleasure. My son, Michael. Hello, everyone. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, they are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. 
If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man, but there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now in front of me, I got a book that has some great pictures on the cover, Historic Black Brooklyn. And with me is Brian Merlis, who's one of the co-authors of the book. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Thanks so much, Mike. Okay, so what 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 was the idea behind the book? What made you guys start to work on it, and what's it about? Well, Clarence and I know each other for about 40 years. I worked with his wife in the city school system back in the 80s. We stayed in touch. He was working on his Ph.D., um, which he accomplished, and he's written many books on uh, politics and black history, the black churches of Brooklyn. And I've done over 20 local history books focusing on my hometown of Brooklyn, and I developed this uh, very large photo archive over the last 40 years with many thousands of photos organized by neighborhood. And uh, we felt that we should put our heads together and do something on black history. I was going to do, um, I do neighborhood books, Park Slope, Flatbush, Bay Ridge, Williamsburg. And I was going to do Bedford-Stuyvesant. And then I was saying, well, then I'll have to do Ocean Hill. And should I combine them? I said, you know what? Let me focus in on Black Brooklyn. Let me call Clarence up and let's try to do an overview. And we gleaned through many, many, uh, you know, historical references, uh, primary source materials, as well as uh, a lot of the books that have been written over the last 150 years. Some of them were written under the, you know, in the perspective of the Dutch themselves who owned slaves. So we had to take those with a grain of salt. And we went back 400 years to the first black um, appearance in the New York Harbor on the ships. And they were not slave ships. These were uh, explorer ships. And mostly uh, these dark-skinned people, I wouldn't call them sub-Saharan Africans, but maybe Moors from Algeria area, Tunisia, Morocco, they were uh, played a vital part on the explorer ships that came into the harbor beginning in the 16th century. Now, when, we, when, did, uh, when did the yeah, Dutch start settling Brooklyn? Traced this. Okay, sorry. The Dutch settled in around 1609 in Manhattan. That was uh, the famous purchase of Manhattan. And uh, by the 1620s, Brooklyn was starting to become a hotspot as it is today. 
And you mentioned the Dutch had slaves at the, you know, back then. Uh, not at the outset. I mean, by the 1620s, uh, a flow of uh, slaves from the uh, Caribbean uh, started to come in as agriculture became uh, established, and the Dutch uh, really decided to stay here, and um, they needed a source of labor. So, uh, as is with the uh, associated English colonies, uh, slaves flowed into the uh, Dutch colonies of New Netherlands, which included New Amsterdam, the entire Hudson Valley, uh, a lot of New Jersey, going down to Delaware. And there was a shortage of women. They had to import a special shipment of women, sl- women slaves around 1827. And, um, but even at that time, there were free blacks who owned land, and uh, they were farmers. And uh, uh, Anton Janssen van Sully was one of the patentees of the town of, I think he was a patentee, but I know he was on the militia of the town of Bushwick, one of the founders of the town. And uh, it was... Uh, you know, they were very much subjected to Native American attack and as well as incursions by the English across Newtown Creek in Newtown, which is, uh, you know, Mass Beth, Long Island City. And they had to hold their ground over there. Uh, there were a few mudflat islands in Newtown Creek and actually Bushwick itself had to be fortified under the direction of Governor Stuyvesant. And uh, Van Lee played a major role in that protection. So yeah. did the did the life of, of these first Africans that were were living in Brooklyn did it change much when the when the Dutch surrendered to the English? Yeah, the English put much uh, more harsh restrictions on the activities of blacks, especially the slaves. Um, they needed passes if they wanted to travel. They usually had to be accompanied. Uh, they couldn't be out after dark, and uh, those restrictions on uh, African Americans traveling, as you see, is really, it's uh, it hasn't really gone away that much. You know, if you're sort of driving while black, and they say a lot of these things go back as a as a historical legacy of restricting uh, the freedom of mobility by uh, African American people. And plus, uh, they they say, and you know, that the English were much harsher in terms of their uh, treatment of their slaves. The Dutch sort of call it a soft slavery. And the Dutch did uh, really live close to their slaves. They shared the same uh, work-a-day uh, schedule and, and dinner table in many respects. They were allowed many more freedoms. And when the British occupied during the Revolution until 1783, until their evacuation, they were very much surprised at the uh, the way that the blacks uh, were treated, even while they were in bondage, they said, "You know, how can you, you know, let your slave do this and that?" And the English were much harsher, and you know, they had the whole slave system down in the uh, British West Indies and the southern colonies. And it seems as if the evidence points to the fact that the Dutch were—I don't like to use the word kinder or nicer—but it was not as, you know, a, a poisonous relationship, put it that way. But there were complications in the relationship. Not all the Dutch were that sweet to their slaves. There was instances of shackling them and beating them. So uh, this was not a hot and dry rule. And as time went on and slavery uh, died out by 1827, 
many of the blacks, in fact, in fact, that time the the black people in Brooklyn were speaking Dutch, as did the Dutch people who were now American citizens after, um, you know, the um, independence. Um, they carried a lot of the Dutch uh, culture with them, and uh, you know, a lot of the festivities, celebrations, you know, customs, etc as well as language and music. Yeah, it's really an interesting story. And uh, we wanted to document uh, through photographs primarily, which began, you know, in the mid to late 1800s in this uh, instance, and publish those photos to really show how the life of the average uh, person of color was, how people lived their day-to-day lives, going on a bus, going on a trolley, going to work, having a good time, um, and we document that through hundreds of photographs, as you see in the book. Now, let me ask you something. Is the, okay, is the Dutch and, and then the English, did the American Revolution, during the war and after the English evacuated, did the lives of those slaves change very much? I, don't, I really don't know really how that affected them. I think everybody was glad to see the British leave. It was a hardship. The British imposed a lot of hardships upon the subjects, and those included the uh, free Dutch, who were wealthy. You know, they had a lot of land, many of them. And those, whatever hardships the Dutch had, must have been uh, passed down to any slaves they had. And in terms of the free blacks at that time, as few as there were in, in the 1700s, if any, there were probably very few by that time. Um, I think that they, they had hardships, but their life was hard. <laughs> Whether the English were there or not, they were slaves, so <laughs> it couldn't have gotten that much better unless they were freed. And freedom began with the uh, Quaker abolitionist movement in Philadelphia and quickly spread over to uh, the Westbury, Long Island, Quakers at Jerusalem, North Belmore, and they became abolitionists, the Hicks family. And once that movement got full swing, laws were passed in 1799 in New York State that ensured the um, emancipation by 1827 of all people of color. So what happened to those people in, in 1829? Or what? Yeah, good question. A good number of them remained uh, with the families. Um, they lived on the premises or nearby. They were um, paid labor paid labor on the farms. I don't know what they were paid. Um, I'm sure it was a subsistence wages. You know, they, they got enough food to eat. They survived. And they were able to work, uh, you know, multiple jobs and hustle to make a living like a lot of the white people did in the early 1800s. Uh, employment was not steady. There were no labor laws. Yet people were able to uh, get enough food to, to put on the table most of the time. And, and some of those people actually formed a community by the 1830s east of uh, one of the large uh, plantations owned by the Leverts family at Bedford Corners, about Bedford Avenue and uh, where Atlantic Avenue is now. And they formed the, the community of Weeksville, which was one of the nation's uh, first, you know, important communities of color of former slaves. And that um, is now a historic site with a uh, multicultural uh it's like a museum with a um, restoration, a little village restoration there in Ocean Hill. And Weeksville was a 
pretty much a self-sufficient community. It had its own newspaper, actually had a baseball team, it had uh, orphanage home, it had schools. So this community lasted for about 30 years, and then little by little, the expanding city of Brooklyn swallowed it up, and developers slowly, you know, purchased the lands and built the row houses and brownstones and uh, even uh, wood frame houses that you see today in the Ocean Hill section. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. You in, in doing this book, did you ever run across any descendants, direct descendants of the Dutch slaves? No, I didn't do any interviews of the Dutch in this book. We do have some in the book I did with Leslie Arlette Boyce on Gowanus Legacy Industry and Odyssey, where we did um, interview a woman named Arapalye, who was involved in the arts in Gowanus, and her ancestors were slave owners. And my co-author, Leslie, is African-American, so that was must have been an interesting interview. And... Uh, they were the, you know, among the first uh, settlers they were of Huguenot stock, and they settled up in the Bushwick and Gowanus areas as well. And I think the first uh, white child born in what is now Kings County was a Rappelier child around 1640 or 1650 something. Yeah. But we, I did not interview any of the descendants of the Dutch. And I don't know what they would be able to tell us other than family lore that might have been passed down. But I don't think they really discussed much, even among themselves, about how they treated or had slaves. I think many of them maybe want to forget that chapter. Now, what the black baseball team, when did they start playing baseball? In the 1850s, and I think in the book, there's actually, it mentions the name of the team in the section on Weeksville, and they had a team, I don't have any, you know, box scores or anything like that, or uh, or lineups, but they did have a baseball team, I don't know who they played against, whether they played uh, other black teams, or they played integrated baseball, in those days, people played, and uh I don't think there was much of a color line in the 1850s. Baseball was first gaining popularity. If you can get enough players to play, I guess they they just played. It wasn't a professional team. Yeah, well, the first professional team would be in the 1860s. But, um, oh, yeah, New York Knickerbockers and all those guys. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah, the abolitionist yeah. movement, I mean, it, it, there are a lot of ties to the abolitionist movement to Brooklyn. Were the local population, the, the the black population in Brooklyn, were they involved or were they just on the Very side, much so to speak? So. They had they had a lot of meetings and to raise uh, consciousness. Of course, with you know uh, Henry Ward Beecher's church was uh, mostly a white church, Plymouth Church, but you know you had people like Frederick Douglass, and you had a lot of abolitionists, and they had meetings, multiracial meetings, fundraising events. And it was almost uh, sabotaged by the uh, the movement to send blacks to Africa, the recolonization movement. And many blacks did go back to Africa and form Liberia in the 1820s, naming uh, Monrovia as its president, as its capital after President Monroe. And many of the blacks in the New York area and probably nationwide said, you know, this is just taking the... Uh, 
microscope of abolition. We want to be freed. You know, we want to stay here. We don't. We have no interest in going back to Africa. So they focused in more on the abolitionist movement, and of course, Brooklyn was a big spot on the Underground Railroad. I think every city in town north of the Mason-Dixon line is going to claim that it was an important stop on the Underground Railroad. And really, basically, you'd stop wherever it was safe or whatever it was it was time or, or however it was planned um, to come up from the south through the Chesapeake, the Delmarva, et cetera. But Brooklyn was a hotbed of abolition, and um, the documents prove that, and we do get into that to some extent. After all, uh, Abolition in Brooklyn would be a book by itself. Now, I'm looking at the cover of your book, and on the right side, it looks appears to be what would be a Civil War officer. Do you know the, the story yeah, behind that picture? Vogel's, uh, L- Lieutenant Vogel saying, and that's in the Massachusetts Historical Society, he was in the Massachusetts resident, but he also lived for a time in Weeksville, and he is depicted in the movie Glory. I don't know who plays him. It's definitely not Tom Hanks. <laughs> well, Matthew Broderick <laughs> or whoever, but... <laughs> but, yeah, and he was just uh, one person of color from the North. Um, the Holmes brothers from Canarsie, whose descendants, I think, might still be living in Canarsie, they also fought and were injured during the Civil War. And uh, they're buried in Canarsie Cemetery right over there by Remsen Avenue. If anybody wants to visit them, they'll be waiting. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a Canarsie Cemetery. Well, you know, there's a lot of dead people in Brooklyn, more than yeah, that's people, true. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty big. It's a municipal cemetery now. And if you go down Flatlands Avenue and make a right on Remsen Avenue, it's a couple of blocks down on your right. And it's fairly large. It's a nice necropolis, as they say. It's not as beautiful as Greenwood. The rich people would be buried in Greenwood or Woodlawn <laughs> up in the Bronx with these ornate things. But you'd have to speak to Jeff Richmond. He's the expert on, on Greenwood Cemetery. Yeah, well, he's been he on the show a couple of times. Yeah, he's a good guy. He was over my house about a week or so ago. Yeah. Now you got, I don't even know how many pictures, but what, what pictures are most interesting to you? What do you think, what what stands out? What do you look at when you say, hey, this is a great picture and this great story behind the picture? I, I like I like regular street scenes with regular, showing people in their day-to-day lives and with with black people and white people just with each other, getting along, you know, talking sometimes, conversing, interacting. And they could be from any era, but through the research, we found that there was a lot of, you know, cooperation between all types of people, um, more so than conflict. There was more of a, a you know, you hear about problems and things, and that's what makes the newspapers. But, you know, when people are getting along and, and, you know, just living their lives together, that doesn't make headlines. So these pictures that we exposed and published for the first time uh, show people in their day-to-day lives, and many of them are getting along. Even in public housing, they think of projects as like, you know, not public housing, but black housing, you know, and this is where all this horrible stuff takes place. But, you know, there was a window of opportunity, you know, when these houses were built and there was integration for 20, 30 years, and you see people of, of all races in sitting areas or playgrounds and Everyone's just getting along and having a good time. And 
and that's what I like to see. What was the effect of Jackie Robinson playing in Brooklyn? I don't know. You know I miss that era, but my, my late dad was at the game before he broke into the majors, which was an exhibition game when he still wore the minor league uniform. But it was a, probably a very exciting time, and, and I'm sure you know there was a tremendous amount of pride in the black community to see this color barrier finally be broken in Brooklyn. And I'm sure that the white people liked it. You know, the vast majority of them, you're always going to have people who, who, you know, make them upset or whatever. But I think that this was a, a really great thing for all of Brooklyn. And, of course, Jackie Robinson was one of the you know, more, excited, more exciting baseball players to watch. He brought a new dimension to uh, baseball in Brooklyn. And those who followed him brought a higher level into the major leagues. And of course the Negro leagues, you know, had a big place in Brooklyn too, over at, in, uh, on the East New York, Cypress Hills, Woodhaven line at Dexter park where the Bushwicks played. And, um, you had a lot of Negro baseball played there as well as the parade grounds and other places. And, uh, you know, they had great players as well. So, uh, I think everybody knew that they were wonderful athletes. And major league players who barnstormed, you know, they played with the black players, not during the major league season, but offseason, barnstorming. And, um, and they knew the talent that was really, uh, sadly kept out of major league baseball for political reasons. Uh, you know, so sadly that, uh, that's an era which has passed and now we have integrated baseball and integrated hockey. <laughs> well, you know now the when, uh, I was young, you, when I was young, you wouldn't even have a black person in Madison Square Garden watching a Ranger game, and now you got some of the best players in the National Hockey League are black. So times do change. Yeah. Well, now the uh, the Negro leagues are recognized. Their statistics are rec- recognized as Major League Baseball statistics, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, it's interesting. I don't know you know, how I feel about that because it's a different league and it should be, you know, there's statistics that can be in a league just like the Pacific Coast League statistics. I kept the Pacific Coast League. That's a professional league. And that, why isn't that considered major league? You know, they're all, maybe, maybe they want to, that's the way of saying that the Negro Leagues were on a par with the, with the white teams of the 30s and 40s. Um, you know, they trying to, they're under a microscope now, as is a lot of things to be politically correct. So maybe if they excluded Negro league statistics, they would not be considered major and they were saying, well, black players were not major or something. I don't know. <laughs> Everything is a question of, uh, you know, what looks good now and, uh, you know, but of course they were, they were great players in the Negro Leagues. Uh, you know, everyone that's been known since uh, you know, you know, the day one. So, and me, of course they've been in the Hall of Fame. You know, let me ask you: the, over the years, the centuries, so to speak, the, the population, the African American, the black population of Brooklyn, what were the major influxes? When did things change? Well, they call it the Great Migration. You know, which is about World War One through 
the 50s and then the second migration of Caribbean immigrants coming in from the 60s to the 90s. But basically to escape Jim Crow South, there was a tremendous departure and exodus from the South of, uh, you know, blacks who was, you know, faced horrible discrimination and Jim Crow laws and were forced to work as sharecroppers or whatever down South. And during the, those years, there was also a tremendous exodus of white people leaving the South for cities in the North to go up to Detroit and Chicago and Topeka, or is Topeka in the South? I don't know. <laughs> they came up wherever it was, Gary, Indiana, um, Newark, and that's when you really have that big flood of immigration, I call it. And uh, that changed the population changes the statistics and changes in many neighborhoods because people needed to live somewhere. And Harlem was a big destination. And then when that A train was complete, completed in around 1930, that uh, offered a direct link to the uh, Fulton Street corridor in Brooklyn. And many blacks left Harlem and moved into um, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Ocean Hill, just, uh, just like... Um, Jews and Italians left the Lower East Side over the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903 and came to live in Williamsburg, Brownsville, Bushwick, and those areas. So it was a similar thing. Of course, one was caused by um, situation, living conditions in the South, and others were of hardship across the Atlantic Ocean, whether it had been in Italy you know, Ireland, um, in Russia, you know, where the Jews were struggling there in restricted areas. So uh, you see a lot of similarities in history among groups. And the struggle of the blacks in Brooklyn over the last 400 years, it, it was very bad. It was very, very challenging. But every ethnic group struggled over the course of time and you had the depression which added problems to it and now we're struggling through this COVID so life is always a struggle however you look at it and we wanted to focus in Clarence and I on some of the unique struggles that black people faced and have overcome and and see some of the highlights like the elite black communities that existed in the 19th century and the leadership, which were professionals, teachers, principals, lawyers, doctors, pharmacists, and businessmen that were in Brooklyn. And many of these people were successful, like Lena Horne's great-grandfather, Mr. Scottron. And he was an inventor. He was successful. He owned property, as as many blacks back then. And he was on the school board. So there's a lot of interesting stories that most people don't know about unless they look into it and you don't need my book to do it this could be found out online there's a lot of documents and a lot of stories written and articles and um you know i'm not the first one to write it you know clarence and i but what is primary about our book is we have visual primary sources most notably photographs but also ephemera and census reports and a lot of things that actually illustrate this history and prove the presence and existence and participation in Brooklyn's history and Brooklyn's growth 
by the black people of those days. Is there anything else you you want to particularly highlight? We're you know closing in, I guess, on, on our time limit. But is there anything, the final thing you want to say about what's the most interesting part uh, of the black community in Brooklyn that you discovered or wish to bring out to the audience? Well, the Black Belt, which was along Myrtle Avenue, wasn't really the Black Belt. It's just that there was a, it was really an Irish neighborhood with a few little pockets of black people living throughout it. And it was basically mostly Irish. But I guess if you were coming from a very, very white section, we're talking in the 1800s, 1880s, 1900, if you were coming, let's say, from Gravesend or you're coming from East New York and and you came up there, you'd see a few black people, and it became known as the Black Belt, but really it was an Irish neighborhood. And what I learned most in the book is that uh, the lives of black people during those years, you know, of the late 1800s and throughout the 1900s, um, was very similar to that of white people, struggling to make a living, working, hoping for the best for your children, going to Coney Island, going on a ride, going to Ebbets Field, enjoying a game, getting your confirmation photos taken, going to church, doing this and that. The similarities were, they really outweighed the, uh, the, the differences. And I know people like to separate and say, well, they did it this way, we did it that way, such and such. What I found were the similarities outweighed the differences, and the process of doing this book opened my eyes to a lot of things and erased some of my prejudices. And I learned a lot, and I grew a lot in the process of working with Clarence with this book, because we, we have different perspectives on the subject, as Clarence is African-American, even though and I'm white, and we, we grew up only a few miles apart, but he was in the projects. I was in a private house. You know, he went to school. In Canarsie, I went to school in East Flappers. I actually went with Al Sharpton and Willie Randolph. And he went to Canarsie when my father was in the faculty of Canarsie High School. So when there was uh, riots going on there, you know, he was chased out. He had to be protected by white people in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, when we had riots in Tilden, you know, we just went to the auditorium or something. <laughs> so it was a really interesting experience. Uh, the book has been really... Uh, uh, received with a smile and um you know it's available uh you know it's not on amazon it's not it's okay eBay. i was gonna ask you that no it's not on amazon no mark bezos has enough of my money you know i think he, he can do without it but we do have it on ebay and it's available through the website old n y c photos can, dot com can you repeat and that again for those of us a little slow Yes, old NYC photos dot com. Okay, the name of the right. book the letters. Yeah, the name of the book: Historic Black Brooklyn: Four Hundred Years of Struggle and Hope. The authors: Brian Merlis and Clarence Taylor. Thank you guys for uh, bringing history to life. Well, it was my pleasure, and uh, I thank you. And I hope uh, people will learn a lot about their neighborhood. And if they're not from Brooklyn, it's still a great book to read. <laughs> All right. Well, thank right, you, Brian. Have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. Take that care. was fantastic. My pleasure. You take care.
How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. 
Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, company now by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. All right, now, thanks again to Brian Merlis. The name of the book is Historic Black Brooklyn, 400 Years of Struggle and Hope. Beth, did you learn anything from the, the conversation that you didn't know before? I learned, <laughs> everything was new to me, you know, and here I'm living in Brooklyn. It's Black History Month, and thank goodness for Mr. Merlis. Thank you so much for sharing all this. And the book is beautiful. Anybody that's looking for a coffee table book, it is absolutely beautiful. There are wonderful pictures throughout, and um, just, I knew nothing about it. How, how about you? Well, obviously, I knew some of it about it. I've lived in Brooklyn my entire life, but you, there's always something you can learn, no matter what the circumstances. And one of the things I mentioned this before, there was a picture of a, I guess, semi-pro baseball team called the Kingsborough. And my father used to play for a semi-pro baseball team named the Kingsborough and basketball, baseball and basketball. And so I don't know, did they overlap? Did they come from the same? I, I seriously doubt back in the 1920s and 30s that there was a, an overlap on something like that. Maybe they just had similar names. Well, yeah, your dad, the Kingsborough Club. I don't no. know if that would make a difference. Yeah. All right. In any event... Hopefully we're going to be back on the air in a couple of weeks on the same and the same next week on the same places and times. I hope y'all Thank enjoy listening. listening to us. And don't forget to give us a call at Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Have a good week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, 
It's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they're our cousins, sisters, they're our roots. So St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.